What? College matters. What? College, college matters. matters. Really? For sure. College matters. Alma, Alma matters. There are so many different ways to help people and help societies um, and help each other through this field that really anybody, despite uh, or regardless of their skill level or, or their you know, early exposure to medicine or whether or not they have family members in medicine, I think, I think that there's something for everyone in this field. That is Dr. Sanjeet Rangarajan, Assistant Professor of Otolaryngology, Head and Neck Surgery at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center in Memphis, Tennessee. Hello, I'm your host, Venkatrama. Today's episode is on the study of medicine in our series on college majors to serve as a primer for high schoolers. Dr. Sanjeet Rangarajan joins us on our podcast today to give us an introduction to the study of medicine. In this podcast, Dr. Rangarajan first tells us what the study of medicine is, brief history of medicine, impact of technology on medicine, the hot areas of research, the skills needed to study medicine, and the available opportunities when you graduate. Now, before we jump into the podcast, here are the high fives, five highlights from the podcast. You know, traditionally, medical school has been a four-year postgraduate degree, degree program. And mm-hmm. uh, currently today, there's two main uh, medical granting programs. Obviously, our ability to diagnose and treat disease has changed quite a bit as well. And I think a couple of the areas that have uh, resulted in this change have been uh, the study of genomics or, uh, mm-hmm. or genetics, essentially. I would say that the practice of even family medicine has changed uh, due to um, the emergence of big data and uh, artificial intelligence. I think that, you know, even though they will continue to practice to manage the chronic health problems of the population, the tools in which they're using are also changing. Well, I think the number one thing is that you have to care about people or care about others. And I think you could probably say the same thing for a lot of fields, but Obviously, the study of medicine comes so close to the human condition that I think, first and foremost, you have to care about other human beings. Um, the job of a high school student as it pertains to medicine is to understand you know, who they are and start to understand what their you know, strengths and weaknesses are. And- These were the high fives brought to you by College Matters, Alma Matters. matters. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Now, without further ado, here's the entire podcast on the study of medicine with Dr. Rangarajan. Sanjeet, uh, let me welcome you back to our podcast. Thanks for making the time again. This time, you come in as a doctor and uh, making a house visit or you know, <laughs> a, a sad joke. Um, but 
No, I, I really am looking forward to this conversation, especially for youngsters out there. Talk a little bit about what is medicine. You know, uh, you know, obviously everyone knows who a doctor is, but what does it take to become one? And um, I think just stepping through uh, the process and all the opportunities uh, would be a great thing. So thank you for making the time. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I think we'll have a nice discussion because I think that the understanding of what medicine is has really expanded and changed over the last you know several hundred years. And hopefully I'll be able to paint a picture of a field that uh, uh, in some ways may be what people think and in others, maybe not what they think. So, Awesome. Okay. So let's uh, jump into it, uh, right into the thing and Maybe start with what is what is the study of medicine? What does it entail? Sure. So I think when people think about what it means to study medicine or to practice medicine, you know, we immediately think about somebody who has attended medical school. And yeah. um, so, you know, traditionally medical school has been a four-year postgraduate degree degree program. And mm-hmm. Uh, currently today, there's two main uh, medical granting programs, two different types. One is the uh, allopathic medical schools, which award the MD or uh, doctor, mm-hmm. doctorate of medicine, and mm-hmm. uh, others that uh, award the uh, DO degree, which is the doctor of osteopathy. Um, mm. Uh, I would argue that the practice of medicine in 2021 is such a team-based sport that really medicine is practiced by, by many different individuals who, you know, take part in what is today's uh, modern medical industry. And so, you know, even folks like uh, mid-level providers, which encompass physician assistants and uh, nurse practitioners, um, I think you could all the argument that they also practice medicine, but strictly, you know, talking classically, the study of medicine is basically a four-year, you know, graduate degree program awarding the MD or DO degrees. Maybe you can shed a little light on the two streams you talked about, the allopathic and the DO. So um, maybe a little bit of explanation on those. Yeah. So in many ways, they are very, very similar. Um, I think the allopathic schools, which award the MD, uh, are in some ways more commonly known. They've been around uh, a lot longer. Um, uh, I think, you know, I'll talk maybe about the ways in which the two programs are similar. Um, Both are, again, four-year postgraduate professional degree programs. the uh, they both can lead to residency tra- subspecialty training in a variety of fields, um, mm-hmm. really all fields. I mean, you'll find that uh, physicians in whether it be family medicine or neurosurgery or obstetrics and gynecology, uh, you'll find both MDs and you know DOs uh, in in both areas. Now. Mm-hmm. Um, Osteopathy, which is really short for osteopathic medicine, really started Mm -hmm. to surface in the United States in the late 1800s. And osteopathy uh, really stemmed from the idea that 
Um, the understanding of the cause of pathologic conditions um, is of utmost importance. And you could make mm -hmm. potentially the same argument for allopathic schools of medicine. Um, mm -hmm. But there is, um, in some parts of at least the training, there's just a difference in philosophy into how doctors of osteopathy come to understand the basis of disease. So it's less, there's, there's really not much difference in the end product. You know, both MDs and DOs can become board certified in a variety of professional fields, but there are some small, uh, small differences in the type of training, uh, or I should say the way in which they're trained. And so um, hopefully that makes sense. You know, um, I think they're just different, different types of educational programs that can ultimately lead to the same result. You started to talk a little bit about the history of medicine or medical education. Um, uh, you know, give us give us a little um, sketch of that um, in the United States, at least. Yeah. So, I mean, medicine has obviously been around as as long as people themselves. And you know, when we think about ancient medicine, we think about things like the Hippocratic or. Uh, we think about things like the Hippocratic Oath, which originated mm -hmm. in, uh, you know, ancient Greece. But when we're thinking about the first medical schools in the United States, um, you know, the, I, I believe the first medical school was actually in Philadelphia at the University of Pennsylvania. And mm -hmm. um, Pennsylvania Hospital is actually still standing there on uh, 9th Street in, uh, in mm -hmm. Philadelphia. And then, mm -hmm. of course, you know, the old, some of the old, other old medical schools include Harvard and Columbia and Johns Hopkins and Dartmouth. And, you know, early on, there were very few medical schools. Uh, but uh, again, the earliest ones cropped up on the East Coast of the United States uh, in the former colonies. And over the course of the next, you know, 300 years or almost 300 years, uh, there's a series of changes to the curriculum the type of training and you know, how we train medical students and uh, both in the uh, postgraduate degree program, which is, you know, the medical school, as well as the post-medical school training programs, which are residencies, et cetera. Hmm. I remember reading, um, maybe it was uh, about the um, 1918 flu that, you know, the medicine, uh, you know, getting a degree in medicine was pretty straightforward. Um, none of the rigor that you see today or, you know, in the past 50 years. So certainly has transformed, I think, in terms of how medical education is uh, sort of disseminated. Yeah, I think that the, you know, it was it was pretty straightforward. And again, there were so few medical schools that, um, you know, uh, there wasn't a need for a lot of oversight from a national yeah. standpoint. And um, I think a series of things happened over the course of, you know, a couple hundred years, you know, the formation of the uh, American Association of Medical Colleges or Association of American Medical Colleges, which is the AAMC, which is still in mm -hmm. existence today. Mm -hmm. um, that was created to provide some oversight and develop some educational standards for medical schools. Um, and then later on in the early 1900s, the Flexner Report, which was issued um, by Abraham Flexner, really uh, it reported on the standards 
that were currently in place at American medical schools. And what, what resulted from that was actually that many non-university based medical schools. So basically independent medical schools, they had to close. Mm -hmm. And so, Mm -hmm. so then, you know, basically you had a situation in which you had all of the medical schools in the country that were associated with, you know, generally larger universities. And that was really when we started seeing, you know, the start of additional guidelines for residency programs. And then the uh, LCME, which is essentially a committee on medical education that is still in existence today. And so as there has been more oversight in how we train future physicians, um, we have also seen an increase in the uh, competitiveness of getting into medical schools as well. Just, just because you know the schools are under such a high uh, burden to produce excellent graduates that they also mm-hmm. you know put in a lot of extra you know effort and resources into attracting you know, what they would say is are the best and brightest. To said at the outset, medicine is changing, evolving, and a lot of things, uh, you know, you know, the definitions have changed as well. And I'm, I'm imagining that technology and instrumentation has a lot to do with that. So maybe you can speak to that as a starting point for the next set of discussions here. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, anyone who's been to the doctor recently knows that some of the technologies that you'll see in your, you know, average physician's office, uh, a lot of it wasn't around 10 or 15 years ago. So some Mm -hmm. people may be used to checking their uh, test results in through an online portal, uh, Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, through an online portal or, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, using their smartphone or to converse with their physician, uh, or maybe they may go to the office and check in on an iPad. If you think about it, you know, none of these things were around more than 10 years ago. And so, but clearly they've found their place in the modern practice of medicine, but, you know, the role of technology goes beyond just how patients interact with their physicians. A lot of the way we practice medicine has also changed as well. And I think, you know, one of the most, you know, obvious and potentially well-known effects of that modernization of medicine is the electronic medical record, which, um, Mm -hmm. you know, now uh, physicians are required to use electronic medical records uh, almost without... uh, um, exception. I think, you know, you'll find very few physicians now using paper medical records. And, and, uh, and so that in turn leads to a cat changes, right? So physicians, um, have to sometimes spend additional time documenting, uh, you know, their visits in electronic medical record may take more time, you know, than Mm -hmm. using a paper chart. Um, in the same way, uh, you know, those notes become part of the medical legal, uh, record. And so, um, you know, we, uh, we have to pay a good amount of attention. So you have this whole field of electronic medical record development uh, that has cropped up. And I think that's one of, been one of the big places where things have changed for physicians practicing medicine. Obviously, our ability to diagnose and treat disease has changed quite a bit as well. And I think a couple of the areas that have uh, resulted in this change have been uh, the study of genomics or uh, mm-hmm. or genetics, essentially. Um, mm-hmm. 
We understand a lot more about chronic diseases like uh, cystic fibrosis and cancer and rheumatologic diseases. Um, I think a lot of that uh, has changed just because we understand the human genome and uh, we understand that simple mutations in genes lead to basically the development of these diseases. And so that is something, again, that you know, really wasn't here in the, as late as the early 1990s. I mean, any of us who were around during that time remember the excitement uh, that came about with the completion of the human genome product, yeah. uh, the human genome project. And um, mm -hmm. if you remember back uh, the cloning of Dolly the sheep um, right. as well, I mean, some of these, these things seemed like science fiction when they were first reported on. Um, but now, you know, the things that we really thought were, huge leaps uh, in understanding are now fairly commonplace for us now. And so, you know, I'm a surgeon and mm -hmm. technology has really changed the way that I practice medicine. Um, everything that I do is actually uh, performed with small, tiny video cameras. And I use, you know, very high definition 4K monitors in the operating room. And we use uh, electromagnets to uh, track our instruments, uh, you know, to the millimeter. And I mean, we have all kinds of incredible technology that just changes really every couple of years, um, which is pretty incredible. You know, other than basics that people might be thinking about, what are the kinds of areas that are emerging, you know, across disciplines and such? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So I'm going to get back to something I had alluded to earlier in that, you know, we have always thought about the practice of medicine as being limited to physicians. Um, and then we also have thought that when you become a physician and you finish medical school, that you practice as a doctor, you know, you go to the, and go to the office and you see patients and you work or you go to the operating room and you perform surgery. And those, you know, fairly rigid lines have been starting to blur for several decades now. So many folks uh, who have tried to have children understand the difficulty that can come with something like infertility. Um, mm -hmm. Now we have maternal fetal medicine and things like in vitro fertilization. And we have fields mm -hmm. of medicine that are, you know, very specialized to help, you know, patients who are having trouble having children. And they utilize really the latest technology and the latest understanding into how to work around those difficulties. Um, I would say that there are several um, areas within cardiology. So um, uh, people who have cardiac arrhythmias or have structural problems with their heart um, mm -hmm. can visit an electrophysiologist or a um, structural cardiologist who can use uh, tiny uh, catheters and uh, essentially reprogram the way the, the heart beats. Um, I mean, that's putting it simplistically, but that's sure. essentially, you know, what they do. Neurologists and neurosurgeons work together to treat the symptoms of Parkinson's disease by 
using deep brain stimulation. They insert a small electrode into the part of the brain that's malfunctioning and are able, uh, they're able to deliver fine electrical pulses and you know, take away people's tremors that have been you know, present for years. You know, these are just a couple of the examples of, of places where things are changing. But, there, you know, things may also not be so obvious. So, you know, family medicine, people may, you know, think that the folk uh, that the people may think that the doctor that they visited for years as a as a pediatrics patient or maybe later on in life as a, you know, people will see an internal medicine doctor or a family medicine doctor. Um I would say that the practice of even family medicine has changed uh, due to um, the emergence of big data and uh, artificial intelligence. I think that, you know, even though they will continue to practice to manage the chronic health problems of the population, the tools in which they're using are also changing. This is getting back to our, you know, I, you know, our discussion on the role of technology and and the tools that they're using are changing so much that it in effect also changes the specialty, I think, you know, because family medicine and internal medicine doctors, they have to be doctors, but they also have to be data scientists, right? They have to understand these big collections of data and understand how to utilize research that is also constantly changing uh, to better their patient populations. And so, you know, while maternal fetal medicine and, you know, areas of neurosurgery, cardiology, these are some of the things that we've mentioned that I would say are emerging areas within medicine. I think, you know, you'll find those changes even at, you know, pretty much every, every specialty area. Now, another thing is, you know, people who complete medical school, who do the four-year degree and may, may or may not complete residency training, there are places for um, physicians to work that don't necessarily involve care, you know, because physicians are needed in companies and uh, startups. Mm-hmm. Physicians are mm-hmm. needed at in insurance companies. Um, I think we've seen physicians are becoming more represented in politics and in government. Um, and so, you know, the practice of medicine or becoming a physician can be taken well beyond the clinic or the hospital setting as well. And I think for anyone who is considering a medicine or going into medical school can really serve themselves well to stay extremely open-minded, not just as to what specialty they plan to pursue, but also how they envision the rest of their career looking. Because I think the sky is the limit for medicine as well. And it's not something that necessarily will get talked about very often. No, that's a, that's a great point. I mean, and and public policy or health policy, you know, is another big, obviously, area. Uh, we've seen that in the last couple of years now. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. So, Sanjeet, um, I think um, all the high schoolers out there who are interested in pursuing medicine or think they want to pursue medicine, what kind of skills do you think are needed to be good at this? Um, and obviously, there are different roles to play. So, you know, maybe you could speak to that. Sure. So I think the number one thing is that you have to care about people or care about others. And I think you could probably say 
the same thing for a lot of fields, but obviously the study of medicine comes so close to the human condition that I think first and foremost, you have to care about other human beings. Um, I think most people would probably put themselves into that category. So I think, you know, right off the bat, we don't have to exclude anybody if they're considering medicine. So I think that that's good. The second thing, though, is I I think you need to be disciplined. Um, Mm -hmm. I think you have to be disciplined for a few reasons. Um, The first is that, and I think we'll talk a little bit more specifically later about the process to get into medical school and to complete the medical training, Um, but it is a bit of a hard road and it takes some time. And so any, like anything that takes time, it, it takes focus. And I think that staying disciplined serves you well, not only in the process of getting in and completing medical school, but when treating patients, it also requires a good amount of discipline as well, because often um, you'll find yourself having to, you know, spend extra time with a patient, or you may find yourself, you know, later at night in the operating room. And, and ultimately when you're in those situations in which patient care is, mm-hmm. at, is, is, is at the center of what you're doing, you have to put patient care first. Um, mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that you can't have a, a great life. Um, and it doesn't mean that you can't, um, you know, succeed in and accomplish everything else that you want to uh, in your life. But it does mean that, you know, when you're dealing with patients in those, you know, minutes and hours, you have to put them first. And so that takes, you know, a reasonable amount of discipline. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I think those two things really fit all different types of um, uh, physicians. But, you know, as you mentioned, depending on the specialty, there are certainly, you know, certain things that uh, if you have the skills, um, then it can help you. So the first is let's talk about surgeons and anybody who's doing procedures. So, Mm -hmm. you know, while this would include things, specialties like orthopedic surgery and neurosurgery and otolaryngology, which is ear, nose and throat surgery, Um, It also includes specialties like interventional cardiology um, or interventional neurology. I mean, these are all subspecialties that require uh, some fine motor skills. And, Mm -hmm. you know, um, and and what I'll say about that is, is if you can, you know, if, if, if you have those fine motor skills, then learning these crafts comes easier to you. Uh, but if but if you don't, it doesn't necessarily have to exclude you. It just means that you have to rely a little bit more on that discipline to take the time to practice. Because I think mm-hmm. you know many of us would argue that these are skills that you know you don't have to be born with. They can be taught and they can be learned. And so you know fine motor skills and essentially being able to you know do things like sew or you know, draw a straight line and things like that. I mean, those are things that can be useful if you want to aspire to be a surgeon. I think whether you are a surgeon or a non-surgical specialty, I think, um, you know, there's a healthy amount of reading that you have to do uh, to (laughs) become and stay a physician. And I think that if you like to read, that's certainly a plus. It will make the job, you know, that much easier. I think that internists and family medicine doctors and obstetricians and others who spend a considerable amount of time in the clinic with their patients 
they are well suited to be, you know, good conversationalists and people who can really relate to patients, you know, no matter what mm-hmm. their issues are. And I think, you know, in surgery, we certainly do that too. But again, we spend a lot of time in the operating room where the patient is asleep. So, you know, I think folks who really like to get to know patients and their families, uh, you know, that having that skill and being able to relate to people would be served well, uh, you know, in some of those other specialties as well. In the emergency room, I think that, you know, being able to think on your feet and being able to come to decisions quickly is uh, something that uh, would serve you well. I think um, if you like to deliberate and solve very complex problems that require a lot of consideration, then something like pathology or rheumatology or some of these other fields uh, may be a good fit. There's a lot of things that go into what area of medicine is better suited to someone than another. Um, there's, uh, you know, considerable differences and also different ways to practice as well. So, you know, whether if you're a neurosurgeon in a private practice environment versus an academic practice environment versus an employed hospital environment, it can be very different. Your day-to-day life may be very different. Do you think that most of these skills, I know some of them are um, people skills, but most of these are teachable, are learnable? I definitely think so. Like I said, I think that if you care about people and you're disciplined, then really anybody can learn the skills needed to be not just an average physician, but an excellent physician. Um, I you know, see uh, many people who uh, will tell you themselves that they didn't feel like they had the talent or the skills to become a physician, but some of them are now the leaders in their field. And I think it you know, comes down to their dedication to their specialty and their craft. And so I would encourage all high school students and, um, and beyond to, uh, to really explore medicine as a potential field. And if they're interested in it and they're willing to make the commitment and have that discipline, then they can learn everything that they need to be a shining star in their fields. I have no doubt about that. say as somebody has just finished their undergrad and have gotten into some medical school, what what does that look like? What do the next four years look like just in terms of the types of study that they'd have to undertake? Sure. So as it stands right now, most medical schools are a four-year curriculum. There are mm-hmm. some Uh, There are few exceptions to that, but we'll just focus on the standard four-year curriculum for the purposes of uh, today's talk. Um, Yeah. The the first two years of medical school are called the preclinical years, and they are centered on the type of teaching and learning that most undergraduate schools are accustomed to at this point. So Mm -hmm. they are reading textbooks, they are going to lectures, um, they are learning about the, the human body in its normal mm-hmm. state, as well as the pathologic foundation of disease. So first, generally medical students are learning, 
you know, how does the human body function when it's normal? So they're, they're participating in anatomy classes and physiology classes and an assortment of other coursework that helps them understand how is the body supposed to work? And the second part of that is how does the body look and work when something's not going right? And many mm -hmm. medical schools will take a systems-based approach. So, um, you know, medical students will spend time learning how the cardiovascular system works and then how the immunologic system works or the digestive system. Um, others will, uh, will change the curriculum and focus on particular body areas. So for instance, the head and neck, mm -hmm. well, in the head and neck, uh, you can have a variety of issues. They can, they can be, uh, cancers, they can be, uh, blood issues, they can be nervous system issues. And so, so some medical schools will focus on a particular part of the body and then, you know, teach everything that has to do with that part, uh, when it comes to, again, the pathologic basis of disease. So, so that's kind of in a nutshell, what you learn the first two years of medical school, um, you certainly sure. learn other physician soft skills, like how to take a medical interview, um, how to write a good medical note. Um, how does the health system work? How do you interpret, um, you know, medical studies and understand good data from bad data? Um, you know, th that's, mm -hmm. that's the, that's the first two years of medical school. The, the mm -hmm. second two years of medical school, there is essentially two priorities. The first is to get in the hospital or the clinic and, you know, essentially you enter the medical practice system at this point. And as a medical student are now integrating everything that you've learned over the previous two years and seeing how it relates to the actual practice of medicine. Because, you know, what you find is that what you learn in the book is, on the simplistic side and that there's, you know, several sides to the same coin. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so those last two years are really spent in the hospital and the office working and understanding everything that you learn the first two years. And the second, the second priority or the second objective for the second two years of medical school is to identify essentially what the rest of your career is going to look like. Um, mm. and, um, and, and that really comes down to making a decision as to what happens after medical school. Um, mm -hmm. the, the vast majority will go on to a residency training program that will train them in one or more um, uh, basically specialty programs. So you can go on and become a pediatrician or you can go on and become a uh, neuro, uh, neurologist uh, or, or anything in between. A very small minority of medical st students will graduate and will go on to non-clinical fields. So things I mentioned previously, they'll go on to work for a drug or medical device company, or they'll work for an insurance <laughs> company, or maybe they'll do a second degree, do an MBA or a master of public health, or, or maybe they'll go into research. So, you know, there's a, there's a subsection of, of medical school graduates who do not go on to medical, uh, to residency programs by design, but, in a nutshell, that's what happens during medical school. Now, 
there are a couple of things that have to happen during the course of medical school. The first is um, there are a series of medical board licensure examinations. And Mm -hmm. um, I completed allopathic training. So I'm more familiar with the allopathic board certification Mm -hmm. system. But generally, there is a an examination that has to be taken at the end of the first two years of medical school. And then mm-hmm. uh, a second one that takes place after the um, uh, third, between the third and completion of the fourth year of medical school. Mm-hmm. Um, in the past, there was also a third exam called the clinical skills exam, which assessed uh, in-person uh, medical interviewing and clinical skills. Uh, and that was also assessed by the board of medical examiners um, as with all academic programs, the requirements for medical board licensure are constantly changing. And so, you know, some of the requirements and scoring systems for these different examinations, uh, will likely be different by the time, um, our audience, uh, reaches the completion of medical school. But, but that's essentially what four years, uh, in medical school looks like. In the interest of rewinding further. Sure. Um, so now um, these high schoolers that are, get into college, coming into undergraduate programs um, with, with some desire or intention of doing what, what's called pre-med, right? Mm-hmm. What, what, what kind of background or foundation do you think they need to have at the end of their high school? Is, is there something specific or it can be pretty broad? I think it can be really broad. I think, you know, in high school, it is important to explore a wide variety of interests. Uh, You know, if you enjoy playing sports, then play sports. If you um, enjoy the robotics program, then uh, participate in the robotics program. And, and, And I think really the job of a high school student as it pertains to medicine is to understand you know, who they are and start to understand what their, you know, strengths and weaknesses are and, and maybe give some thought to what they want to do with the rest of their life. And I think, you know, if there's a early inclination that, you know, uh, a high school student wants to become a physician one day, then that's great. And if there are opportunities to explore that, then, you know, I would certainly encourage it. Ultimately, I think, you know, people who are looking to apply to college need to remember that colleges are trying to uh, target and give admission to really a wide variety of students from different backgrounds with different interests. And I think that the most compelling thing that someone can do really at any stage in their education is be able to um, explain why they participate in something and what that means to them. I think that's so much more compelling than, you know, saying, well, I want to go to medical school. So I did this. I think if you love something, then that's what you should pursue as a medical as a, as a high school student. And, Mm -hmm. and I think in turn, you know, eventually some of those interests will lead to interests in college. When we look at prospective medical school applicants from college, I think what's most important to us is, again, trying to understand whether the applicant has explored something they love and have had the dedication, the discipline to pursue it and, um, 
and really explore it to the utmost of their level. So, you know, it goes back to that, I, that idea. I said, you know, the, one of the main things that people should have is discipline. And I think if you can demonstrate that, you know, regardless of what it is, I think that that can be, you know, really important. So I would encourage all high school students to explore their interests broadly and to really throw themselves into whatever it is that they enjoy doing. So once they get to college and the pursuit of the pre-med program or pre-med related studies, um, what kind of things should they be doing? What, what's, what's needed to get ready for the next process of getting into med school? Sure. So, you know, again, these are some requirements that are constantly, you know, changing somewhat. But in general, to go to medical school, you have to complete several prerequisites. And generally, mm -hmm. these are prerequisites in the, the physical sciences. So biology, chemistry, mm -hmm. organic chemistry, and physics. Um, mm -hmm. There are certain prerequisites that must be met prior to application to medical school. Medical schools do want to see that people have pursued a fairly broad curriculum, though, as well. So, you know, things like uh, English or foreign language or uh, economics or other uh, coursework is important. And I think the main thing is medical, school, medical students, I'm sorry, medical schools want to see some consistent patterns of success. So I think that, you know, whether you major in economics or you major in biology or you major in performative dance, um, they want to know that you excelled in your area. So prospective medical students need to identify what prerequisites are currently required by medical schools. Again, they will be similar to the ones I've already listed and make sure that they complete those. There is an entrance examination called the MCAT, uh, which mm -hmm. uh, most of our audience has probably heard of. Um, yeah. it's, it's a standardized test that again has undergone several changes over the years in terms of the way it is scored and the number of sections and the number of questions. Uh, but again, it generally tests knowledge of those prerequisites, which I already mentioned. Um, there right. is an English comprehension component as well. Um, so again, you know, it's not all, not all sciences, although it does tend to, you know, center on, again, those physical sciences. And so um, I'm sure, I'm sure Venkat, I'm sure you've have some, some good advice for how to handle standardized tests. And I would say that this is no exception to that. So uh, completion um, and passing of the MCAT is also a prerequisite. Some of the things that may be less obvious, uh, I, medical schools want to know that, that the student has given some really careful thought to their pursuit of medicine. And mm -hmm. that, and that can be demonstrated in several different ways. Uh, participating in shadowing programs. So basically uh, going to a physician's office or the operating room and just simply observing, uh, mm -hmm. taking it all in, just being present and watching and learning from watching. That helps in two ways. I think one, it helps the prospective student understand if they really truly enjoy 
what it is that physicians do. Um, mm -hmm. And two, it helps them uh, demonstrate to programs that, hey, I've given this some thought and I've actually spent some time watching what it is that a physician does. And and I can, I can talk to you about why I enjoyed that experience. I mean, I think that, you know, it really helps in two ways. And I would say that, that really anybody seriously considering medicine needs to, um, needs to do this. Um, and, sure. because I think, you know, understanding and convincing yourself that this is the field for you, um, is an important part of this process. So that's one way in which, um, uh, one thing that, you know, prospective students will need. The last is that just like with college, medical schools want to fill their classes with a very diverse student body. Um, and they want to have people from all different backgrounds, from all different locations, um, and with a lot of different types of skills and experiences. And so um, anything that the student finds compelling, whether it's uh you know, uh, a service project or, um, you know, or a sport, uh, you know, again, medical schools are going to be looking at that too. So you want to be as well-rounded as of an applicant as possible. I think the mistake I see prospective students making sometimes is diving too headfirst into medicine while they're still an undergraduate student mm -hmm. um, and not not building a much more well-rounded application. And I think that that can, that can really hurt some people if they're, um, if they're not careful. Anything else that you would want to advise or counsel all these folks? I think that medicine is a really great field. I think it allows for a lot of um, variety, uh, which I think, you know, is really what a lot of young people want. I mean, I think there are so many different ways to help people and help societies um, and help each other through this field that really anybody, despite uh, or regardless of their skill level or, or their you know early exposure to medicine or whether or not they have family members in medicine, I think I think that there's something for everyone in this field. Again, if they care about people and are disciplined. Um, and they're willing to, uh, you know, pursue this goal, I think that it can be a very fulfilling uh, career. Okay, so before we sign off here, I thought we could spend a little time talking about you and your uh, practice of medicine. So sure. maybe we can start with, I know, I know that you did engineering, um, is the undergrad and master's biomedical engineering and and then you went off into medicine so tell us a little bit about why you got into medicine sure so i think that you know like any maybe prospective engineering students who may be listening or um anyone who's maybe even considering engineering versus medicine um i always enjoyed solving problems. Um, I found that as a high school student and some of the things that I participated in in high school. And I found that to be further true as I pursued a career in engineering in college. And um, I think that engineering school gives us a great opportunity to learn how to solve those problems, and especially some very difficult ones. But I during the summer's home from medical, uh, I'm sorry, during the summer's home from 
college, I worked in the automotive industry and uh, because I was from Detroit and I found mm -hmm. that while I really enjoyed solving problems that the end result was that I was, you know, helping with a new model year of a vehicle or helping to improve an engine part or, or something like that. And I found that I wasn't very fulfilled by the final end design product of the problems that I was solving. And mm -hmm. I was in a biomedical engineering program at the time. And so things like systems physiology and, um, you know, health related course uh, courses were part of my curriculum. And so I had some exposure to medicine just through my college curriculum. And so I started to think about this into my junior and senior year of college and thinking that maybe, maybe medicine, if I pursued it, it would allow me to continue to solve these problems, but affect change on a level that I was seeking. And so I took on some early shadowing opportunities while I was an undergraduate student. Um, and I came to meet and get to know some really talented physicians who cared a lot about what they did and cared a lot about their patients and consequently actually made very significant impacts on their respective fields. Mm -hmm. And they really made a big impression on me and helped, op me, helped open my eyes to the possibility of pursuing medicine as a career for myself. Um, and in many ways, I still, I still keep in touch with those mentors and look at those mentors as examples of, you know, still ways in which I can push myself even more. And so as time went on and as I, you know, shadowed these physicians in undergraduate school and uh, um, I started to get more and more experience in medicine, I realized that, you know, that problem solving that I came to love in engineering could be combined with, you know, the study of medicine and so that I could get the fulfillment I was looking for as well. And so from, you know, from a 30,000 foot view, that's really how I made that mental pivot to medicine from engineering. And, and I'll say that if you're an engineer, just because you pursue medical school or business school or any, you know, postgraduate degree, doesn't mean you're no longer an engineer. I think in many mm -hmm. ways, the way I approach the practice of medicine and the way I think about patients and, um, and their problems, I think about it very much like an engineer would. And, and many of my research and uh, academic interests also continue to lie at the intersection of engineering and medicine. So in no way was, was those you know, four years of undergraduate engineering education wasted. I think that if anything, it really prepared me for the rigors of medical school and helped give me a framework in which I could understand and solve problems in healthcare and medicine. So I think it was a, it was a great transition for me. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's certainly not for any, everybody, but I don't think that anybody is disqualified just because they, you know, go full force a hundred percent into a given field. So what do you do today? So today I am an academic otolaryngologist, head and neck surgeon. Um, mm -hmm. it's, uh, so I did a five-year residency post-medical school in ear, nose, and throat surgery at The Ohio State University mm -hmm. and 
afterwards, I did a fellowship in rhinology and endoscopic skull base surgery. And mm-hmm. rhinology is the study of the disorders of the sinuses and nose. And, mm-hmm. and skull base surgery is essentially the treatment of diseases and disorders in the front of the uh, front of the brain, basically the intersection between the brain cavity and the sinuses and the eyes. And so I do a lot of brain tumor removal surgically with my neurosurgery colleagues, and we actually work entirely through the nose, which is actually a fairly new paradigm for mm-hmm. this treatment. And so, so essentially um, putting it simply, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a sinus nose and brain tumor doctor. And uh, I work in academic medicine at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center in Memphis, Tennessee. And, you know, I've mentioned academic medicine a few times. What that means is I work for a university. Mm -hmm. My job is split between seeing patients and performing surgeries, as well as performing research and Mm -hmm. teaching the next generation of otolaryngologists. So I have um, a cohort of 25 resident trainees that uh, are learning my craft from me. When did you realize that you were good at this stuff? I mean, it, it, you know, uh, you know, when we do these things, at some point, you it comes naturally, or you feel it in your bones, or metaphorically speaking. Sure. Um, when did you feel that, or was that just a process? You know, it's a. I think it's a process and it's still an ongoing process. I think that, you know, again, like I mentioned, medicine and really everything within it is constantly changing. So, you know, you're a lifelong, lifelong learner in this field. Um, so, you know, I'm constantly figuring out what I'm good at and what I'm not good at and what I need to get better at. I think that's a natural thing for every physician in practice. Um, I can say that, you know, you never truly know if you're going to be good at surgery until you're almost actively doing it as a resident. Uh, And I think that that can be a little bit of a scary thought, but this goes back to the idea that I think that any of these skills can be taught. So again, if you're disciplined, you can learn it. So you may not find out that you're good at it um, until you're a surgical resident. And if you find that you're not that good at it, then it means that you're going to have to work all that much harder um, so that uh, you can be, um, uh, you know, a good surgeon and treat your patients well. So, and then many people close that gap. I mean, it may sound like a rare thing for someone to figure out that, Hey, this doesn't come naturally to me, but that actually happens all the time and people do just fine just with some extra work. So I'll say that I was, I was pleasantly pleased. Um, I was pleased when I entered residency and found that the physical act of doing surgery, surgery came, you know, fairly easily to me. Um, Mm -hmm. but I didn't, it took me a few years to realize that I was particularly good at endoscopic sinus and skull base surgery, which is what I eventually did my fellowship in. Um, mm-hmm. In otolaryngology residency, you learn all about how to you know, treat head and neck cancer surgically. Um, we are professional voice surgeons. So we help people with diseases of their uh, voice box. Um, mm-hmm. We have uh, we have neurotologists within our field, which are basically surgeons who only focus on the ear. Um, we have facial plastic surgeons, and you know these are all areas that I was 
I was trained in, um, but I, mm-hmm. I, but I learned that I was particularly good at the endoscopic or basically using a small telescope and performing surgeries in the telescope through the nose. I, I found that I was particularly good in that area. And so I naturally gravitated towards mentors who also practiced that particular type of surgery. And, you know, they also encouraged me to pursue a fellowship and, you know, I owe a lot to them, um, for, you know, where I ended up. So one last question, um, what do you find is the most uh, satisfying part of what you're doing? So I'm going to be completely honest. I take a lot of pride in my medical surgical practice and treating patients. And, you know, certainly um, it's always a great feeling when you help someone feel better or you help a family member or, you know, when you get those great medical outcomes. But, but I really think the favorite part of my job is actually my residence and the teaching I do from day to day. Uh, I think, mm-hmm. like I said, when you become a physician, there are many different practice environments. Uh, you can practice on your own in private practice or practice with other partners at a hospital. But I chose academic medicine because I really enjoy working with our residents and surgeons and training um, and seeing them close those learning gaps. And, you know, again, they may realize and I may realize that you know, maybe they're good at something or maybe they're not good at something. And, and seeing everybody close the gap over the course of five years by graduation is really the most satisfying and fulfilling uh, part of what I do every day. Awesome. So Sanjeet, um, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for not only taking the time, but, you know, describing this in so much detail. I know it took us a little while getting you on this podcast. <laughs> I know you're a busy guy, but uh, really appreciate you still taking the time and doing this. I'm sure in the interest of you know spreading the word and helping others, I think helping all these high schoolers make up their minds it would be a great thing. So thank you again. I'm sure we'll talk more, but for now, take care, be safe. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Take care and enjoyed it. Yep. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Hi again. Hope you enjoyed our podcast on the study of medicine with Dr. Sanjeet Rangarajan of the University of Tennessee Health Science Center. Dr. Rangarajan gives us a great overview of the study of medicine, the impact of technology on medicine, the emerging research areas, the preparation needed in school and college to go to medical school. I hope this podcast inspires you to learn more about the study of medicine. For your questions or comments on this podcast, please email podcast at almamatters.io with the subject line medicine. Thank you all so much for listening to our podcast today. Transcripts for this podcast and previous podcasts are on almamatters.io forward slash podcasts. To stay connected with us, subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, or visit anchor.fm forward slash Alma Matters to check us out. Till we meet again, take care and be safe. Thank you. College Matters. Alma Alma Matters. Matters.